this week to visit uh, with the church and um, school over there, and uh, it was uh, just a really, really good time. So thank you those that were aware and prayed for me, and uh, I've said to a few people, I feel as though I, I came back with a, a suitcase packed with, that I didn't pack. Um, that's not to say I got stopped by customs as I came in, <laughs> but um, you, you often, you, you just receive far more than you, uh, than you ever expect to. And uh, so, um, personally, I'm looking forward to uh, unpacking that as the, the weeks go on. There is a, a... I have a feeling there is an extraordinary grace upon us this morning to be drawn further into God's love. I, I felt that um, right from the, the, the start. I thought the, the worship team led us beautifully. But there is, there is... It's always there, but sometimes you just feel as though there's something something different about it and I, I feel that this morning and I, I'm, I'm feeling the weight of that a little bit and um, I know where I, I, I intend to start and I know where I'd like to finish. I don't know really what's going to happen in between so um, please bear with me if it doesn't seem as though it's kind of uh, working out as, uh, as it ought to. This is supposed to be the third in a series about the church. Um, the first one had to be moved for unavoidable reasons. Uh, the second one had to be postponed because there was a bit of snow last week. Uh, I heard there was some snow last week. I was in 20 degrees, so you know, I got a text to say, don't go to church, it's snowing, and I just thought, too late. <laughs> um, and this is, this is really loud. Could you just take that down a bit, Pete, please? Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, and so and this was planned to be the third. It's now the first. So um, I'd like to try and take a little bit of time to to do what uh, would have been done two weeks ago, which is to introduce the the whole idea, and then try and look at the bit that that I I've got. And the other two will fit in some other time when it's not snowing and other things aren't aren't happening. So, uh, but. It, just take it from me, there's, there's some continuity about it. And at the end of the year, you'll have seen that. <laughs> Just think, oh, wow, it all fits together, maybe. Um, sometimes we think that the church was our idea. Sometimes we think that the church is just our organization for bringing Christians together so that we can, we can kind of do stuff together on Sundays and we can, um, uh, we can sort of mobilize ourselves to be involved in, in, in good stuff, evangelism and caring for the poor and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it seems like that sometimes. And, and when we hear the church talked about, it seems as though it's a kind of human construct in some way. And of course that's not true. The church, in a sense, even that isn't God's idea. God's idea was this. Before creation, when God first... And I don't know how he first conceived of the idea of, of creating all of us, but he, he said, I just, I just want to share myself with, with 
people, with, with my creation. That's, that's why we're here. That's why uh, we came into being. And so what we call the church is an, an idea that is born out of God's heart since before time. And, and we spend a lot of our time, I certainly uh, spend a lot of my time thinking about the, the church and sort of because I'm very involved in a whole range of things, it occupies a lot of my thinking time and most of my thinking time goes like this. Lord, what is all this about? What, what did you really mean by the church? And throughout scripture, there are lots of pictures for us to help us understand the church. And it's not even as though those pictures were, were clever ideas that the writers came up with, that Paul suddenly thought, oh yeah, the church is, is just like this. Oh, I'll tell them this because that will really help them. I mean, I think that happened, but at a deeper level, the world is the way it is and we are the way we are and society is the way society is because that's the way, that's the blueprint that God's put into it. And so to talk about the church as a, as a body, you think, oh, it's, it's a clever idea to do that. But we can only do that because we've got a body to, to, to use as an example. To talk about the church as a temple, as a building, we can only do that because the examples were given to us and suddenly we started to realize because the Spirit of God showed it to us that that was an example of what God was trying to build with, with people, build with his people. It was always his intention that people would open themselves to his love in their lives. Sin was never his intention. So when that came in and started to mess things up, he needed to help us understand what it was that was his original intention, his idea in some way. And so we have all these metaphors, all these pictures that, uh, that are given to us through Scripture which help us to understand what it is that God has called us into. Some of you who read these things may know that in the New Testament, the word that describes church, is, uh, at least often, is the word ecclesia. And it refers to a, a called out group of people. Um, I believe historically it was, a, it was a, a group of people within a city who were called out for a particular purpose. And that's who we are. We're the people who are called out, called by God, out of the life that we knew into the life that God originally purposed for us. The ecclesia, the church. And we have, as I said, um, this seems to be going on and off. Is it just, is it okay? Are you catching it all? Good. Um, we have, as I said, all of these, these images, temple, body, army, uh, bride, which is the one, one of the ones we're looking at today, that describe who we are. They're all different aspects. We're not more one thing than another. We're not more an army than we are the house of God. We are both. We are, we are all of those things. And so our experience of God, individually and collectively, is described by these things. And so in order for us to know God better, we need to dig into those things to try and and gain more of a foothold in the way that, that he interacts with us, what he intends for us in our lives, not just in our gatherings, but in our lives, 
who we are, wherever we are, at work, at home, in the shops, at, on the bus, on the train, in the traffic jam, in, in, uh, when we're uh, here collectively together, when we're serving, when we're doing evangelism, and, and all those kind of things. That's, that's all the people of God being the church. So our intention with this series, uh, the intention originally was to, to look at different aspects of that. And um, where we are today, what I'm doing today, is not what I had... I didn't think that was the best place to start. But it's where we're starting. Um, so maybe it was God's best place to start. Some of these ideas might be new to you. And uh, you might sit there thinking, well, that's a bit strange. You... I encourage you to go away and think about this stuff. One of the problems with trying to organize Sunday mornings is that you're trying to... It's like a, a, a funnel, and you've got all these things that you think you need to, to fill in to Sunday mornings, and you've got an hour and a half, and you've got families and children and cakes, and, and all of which are important. They're all, they're all good. We want them to be part of it, but we, we can't do everything. And so... Uh, what we do in this talking, although some of you think I probably go on far too long, um, it's uh, Simeon does. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. Stop interrupting. My appeal really is just to go away and, and get into uh, God's Word and, and find out for yourselves. Think about this stuff. If you take notes, great. Um, if you. Uh, if you don't, um, well, maybe you should. I don't know. Uh, I do. Okay. This is where we're going to start. Um, oh, thanks as well to, to Noah. We have a system. If, you've got, uh, uh, if you're speaking on Sunday morning, you've got a PowerPoint. The system is that you send that into the office so it gets put on the, the laptop on Thursday. So I prepared my PowerPoint yesterday, came early... I thought, I'll, I'll give it to whoever's on laptop duty early, and then completely forgot about it. And at the start of the meeting, just as we we're starting to worship, I had to move across there and um, speak to my friend Noah and apologize. So, Noah, well done. Okay, okay. Um, let's go to the, the next slide. Let me read this scripture to you. This is from uh, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like a bride, dressed for her husband. Let me read that to you again. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. If ever I needed convincing that, uh, at least for me, that Revelation was a book full of imagery, uh, this is it. It's a city dressed like a bride. That should immediately tell you that God is trying to say something that words cannot convey, that pictures even cannot convey, that John, when he had this revelation, he saw this and he said, I, I, I can't even describe that. It's a bit like this and it's a bit like that. It looks like a city, but it's a bride. I mean, I've, I, I still have two daughters. I have uh, had the privilege of walking them down the, uh, the aisle to get married. It is one of the most special things you can imagine. 
Um, those of you who have also had that opportunity, you will understand that. And I was the the only reason at Lizzie's uh, wedding that I was slightly sad was that I'd run out of daughters. I, we, we should, should have had more. Um, and uh, it was it was a, a joy. And there's something in this picture of a bride that we're we're going to look at. Um, the city that uh, John describes here. A bit later on, it describes the city as being uh, a cube with sides of 1,400 miles. That would roughly cover Europe. And um, the 1,400 miles would take it up into the um, bit of the atmosphere that's a long way up. And... (laughs) where there's not much oxygen and you can't breathe too well. And that, again, just tells me, when you read the description, you just think there's something incredibly significant about this that is figurative and cannot be uh, described. I'm just saying all this because I want you to understand that I'm not understanding Revelation as a book to be taken literally. It's true. Every word of it is true. But it's not literal truth it's truth to be understood with the help of the holy spirit and this image of the church as bride and a city i mean those two metaphors don't go together for me and i originally i just wanted to speak about the church's bride but the more i looked at it I thought I, I, you can't do it because this is the end of the book this is the end of the story this the city appears like the bride the bride appears like a city big enough to cover a continent there's Somehow I've got to bring those two together. And maybe I'll just sit down now and say, okay, go away and think about it. We're going to start off looking at, uh, at the bride. Let's have the, the next slide. Oh, yeah. It's this I was going to just say this. So what I said at the beginning, see, about God's idea of the church, all of this... This journey, this revelation, it's all so that we can enter into what God's already given us. See, we, we are already the church. We are already God's called out people. We're just not understanding fully and living fully in all that he's prepared for us. Nobody is. The church isn't anywhere in the world. Some bits of the church, I think, are living in it more than, than we are. And by we, I mean the probably the church in the UK and certainly the church in Europe. Um, and it's possible that there are, there are people who are understanding this that, that we actually don't know anything about as entirely possible, even though we're so well-informed globally. Um, there are probably bits of the church tucked away in remote parts of the world where they're enjoying something of God that, that we have no conception of at all. But it's already there for us. There's nothing to prevent us from entering into it because God has already given this to us. This is already true. It's not just something that will be true. It is something that's already true. And the end of the story, although God is the only one who knows the time, the speed at which we progress toward that time is dependent upon the speed that we can receive what he gives us. We are a bride being prepared Brides are late. Ooh. Brides are late for their wedding occasionally. 
And um, it's because they take time over their preparation. Uh, and that's fine because everybody sits there in the church thinking, yeah, she'll get here. Well, we hope she'll get there eventually. Um, she'll get here eventually. And the, uh, uh, the groom is sitting at the front. He's really hoping she'll get there eventually. Uh, but she's preparing. And we're being prepared. And I have a feeling that our groom, the Lord himself, sits there thinking, <clears throat> I wish they'd hurry up. I know they'll get there in the end, but I do wish they'd go a bit quicker. Okay, thanks, Noah. A bride is prepared for a husband for, for three reasons. Okay, right at the start of the story, we read in Genesis 2, um, we read of, of uh, a situation where God realized and, and actually said, it's not good for man to be alone. And the idea that we now call marriage came from that. God prepared a special partnership. Now, it's not to say that uh, if we're not married, that that is less somehow, because I believe there's grace for that. I'm experiencing that myself these days. But we also know that there is, there is a, um, something very extraordinary and wonderful about uh, two people coming together and, and becoming one person. And that's what God had in mind. And he, he brought that into our experience. The reason that it's a powerful symbol for us is because those of us who have been in that situation we understand that experience so why do we find it so difficult to think of the church as a bride being prepared for Jesus oh thanks Megan why is it so difficult for us to think that way why is it so difficult for us to think of ourselves as being prepared for the same type of of special companionship with Jesus that, that a, a husband and, and wife have together. It's not good for the man to be alone. When he speaks of the man, he, I believe he also speaks of Jesus. Jesus was a man, just like we are. It's not good for the man to be alone. Who is the man prepared for? Us. Guys, we're going to have to get used to being part of a bride. I mean that seriously. I mean that seriously. Single people, we have to be used to being part of the bride. I mean that seriously. So there is, there is companionship. And our relationship with Jesus, both at an individual level but at a corporate level, is one of companionship, of closeness, of friendship. I read something... I heard a story recently of uh, a um, a, a well-known prophetic called Bob Jones. And um, he was an American guy and uh, died a few years ago. Um, And a a guy turned up at a church he was part of uh, on one occasion from uh, Mozambique. And and he said... um, 
I'm looking for Bob Jones. I don't know who Bob Jones is, but I know he's here. God told me he's here. Just turned up. And uh, he said, oh, why are you looking for, it, for him? And the, the guy from Mozambique said, well, I was talking to God and I asked him who his best friend was. And he said, it's Bob Jones. So, um, so I wanted to come and find Bob Jones to find out why he was God's best friend. Because I, I said to God, why is he your best friend? And God said, it's because he spends so much time with me. He was God's friend because he spent time with him. And part of the, the journey for us of discovering companionship with the Lord is time. That's how you build a relationship with somebody, isn't it? If you don't spend time with them, it's more difficult to build a relationship. Okay, it's companionship. It's courtship. Um, Song of Songs, chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to read it in, uh, some of it in, in two uh, versions so that you can kind of get different nuances. Um, this is the New Living Translation. You are beautiful, my darling. Beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. This is another example of where um, language is figurative. Because, fellas, I don't know about you, but it never worked too well for me with Anne to describe her hair being like a flock of goats and her cheeks being like pomegranates. You know, that's not how we ended up with two daughters, trust me. But some people want us to... to to imagine that this is just talking about a husband and a bride. It does talk about a husband and a bride, but it's not just talking about a husband and a bride. It is talking prophetically about Jesus and his church. There's no doubt in my mind about that. This is the same um, in another, uh, another version. And this is the bridegroom speaking. Listen, my dearest darling. This is the bridegroom speaking to his bride. This is God speaking to his church. This is God speaking to us. Listen, my dearest darling, you are so beautiful. You are beauty itself to me. Hands up, all those people that have a hard time understanding that God says that to them. The rest of you, please help me. When God says, you are so beautiful... You are beauty itself to me. That's how he feels about the church. That's the level of of intimacy that he's speaking about with the church. Uh, This is a a bit more from... um, This is from uh, chapter 4 of Song of Songs. So you can go back and and read it for yourself and check it out. Um, This is uh, the bride speaking. I've made up my mind until the darkness disappears... And the dawn has fully come, in spite of shadows and fears, I will go to the mountaintop with you, the mountain of suffering love and the hill of burning incense. Yes, I will be your bride. This is the bride speaking, saying, I will forsake everything to be with you. In spite of my fears, I will go to the mountaintop, so 
kind of a high place and a lonely place, the mountaintop of suffering love and the hill of burning incense. Can you imagine a bride speaking to her husband like that? I mean, it's not the normal sort of language. It's not Mills and Boone type stuff, this. But it is something deep and significant about the relationship of God's people with him. I will go to the mountaintop with you, the mountain of suffering love and the hill of burning incense. Yes, I will be your bride. That's what the Lord calls for in our relationship with him. We cannot get close to him without walking through suffering. Not because he brings suffering to us, but because it will come. As a result, we are in a broken world that is suffering. And to make our way into his presence, we have to walk through the suffering. Sometimes we have to walk with the suffering. And sometimes we have to walk in suffering. But we walk because of the direction that we're going. Because we are heading further up the mountain in that figurative sense to be with him. Sometimes we and the church, we think everything should be uh, hunky-dory and and wonderful, and we wonder why bad stuff happens. Why is this happening to me? We have all had that thought. Some of us possibly even right in the middle of those circumstances now. Why am I suffering? We're suffering because we're carrying the love of God, the healing of God, in the middle of a suffering situation. That's why we're suffering, and we're not immune from that ourselves. But the promise of being part of the bride is that we carry that because of his deep love for us, knowing that there is a time coming when that will end. Personal experience of that and what we carry, but also what we carry on, in a sense, because of, of our, uh, our love for people. And what we see around us, and we, we, we see a world that, that suffers, and we, we are impacted by that, but we must not be slowed down by it. Okay? And then this is the response from God for the people that walk through that suffering a bit later on in the chapter. This is God speaking to us. For you reach into my heart. With one flash of your eyes, I am undone by your love. We as the church, when we gaze upon him, when we look to him, he is undone. No wonder his response is is to come and and want to be with us. My desire, personally, for our gatherings, and I've carried this for a long time, and it just grows and grows, and I'm sure it's the desire of, of many of us, is that God is irresistibly drawn toward us. That our love for him, our response to him, in, in, not just in, in worship, but in, in everything, just in our lives, is so directed toward him that he is irresistibly drawn towards him. He cannot help but be with us. He goes, oh yeah, I just want to be there. We don't have to persuade him. 
We simply have to invite him. With one flash of your eyes, I am undone by your love, my beloved, my equal, my bride. Okay, you need to go away and think about this because I don't really understand it, so I can't explain it to you. But we live in an, an, uh, an age of uh, um, the importance of equality and um, equality in all kinds of ways and certainly within, within, uh, between male and female. And uh, this is a message of equality. Okay? Not every translation would translate it that way. That's fine. I'm not going to defend it or explain it or, or justify it in, in any way. I'm just saying that it's there. That God speaks of the church as the equal. What is it that we are becoming? What is it that we are called into being? What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming and living in us, of God living in us. Does God choose to live somewhere inferior? Does God take pity on people and send his spirit just to sort of cheer them up? Oh, let's do them a favor. Let's put my, my holiness within them. I will go and dwell within them. Or does he do that for a people that are being prepared to share eternity as equal partners in a marriage. You leave me breathless. I am overcome by merely a glance from your worshipping eyes. You have stolen my heart. I am held hostage by your love and by the graces of righteousness shining upon you. The graces of righteousness. He's held captive by the graces of righteousness shining upon us. If we enjoy grace, the complete merit and goodness of God, and righteousness, righteousness meaning a right relationship with with God, if we enjoy those things, then we're enjoying them from God. So the church enjoys the reflection of God upon it. So, how can we see ourselves as less than everything God speaks about if it's his grace upon us which is allowing us to be anything at all? We're, we're either nothing or we're, we're everything that God says we are. You can't be in between. We may not be all the way along the journey. Okay? There's a difference between truth and reality. Okay? Truth is truth. Truth is, is, truth is always true, at least that's what I understand. The reality of how much we experience that truth varies. And actually the church is kind of on this journey upwards. We're further on the, than we were 1,500 years ago, um, generally. Um, we're further on than we were two years ago, generally. I mean, it goes up and down. But it's, it's a kind of upward journey. Because that's what Scripture tells us. That's what, what God is revealing to us. So this is the church as a bride. This is what it means to be a bride. This is what it, it's what it means to enter into this type of relationship with the Father. Okay, let's move on. So it's companionship. It's whatever the last one was. What was the last one? Courtship. And it's covenant. 
Um, let me read this to you. Uh, Jesus knew that his mission was accomplished, and to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting nearby, so they soaked a sponge with it, put it on the stalk, on the stalk of hyssop, and raised it to his lips. When he had sipped the sour wine, he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and surrendered his spirit to God. Um, we will be remembering that in this week. This is, we're entering, we've entered now into Holy Week, a week when we particularly, in many parts of the church, we remember his, his last week, the things that he spoke of to his disciples, the journey that he went on through the, uh, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection. We, we're conscious of those things. When we read this account... Uh, we need to bear in mind this. It was written in Greek, yeah? Does everybody that understand Scripture know a bit about that? Okay, it was written in Greek. Um, but Jesus didn't speak Greek. He wasn't Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And uh, I am told, and I'm only told this because I looked it up. It's not because I'm clever. It's just because I've got Google, like the rest of you. And um, the word in Aramaic, meaning finished is kalah. I don't speak Aramaic. I don't even know if that's pronounced correctly, but it is kalah, I'm told. Kalah is a hononym, hom- homonym. It's, you know, it's one word that you can say, and it, means, it can mean two things. It sounds the same. Maybe spelt differently, but it sounds the same. Um, like pride and pride, you know, pride of people, pride of lines. You, you get the picture. Um, as well as finished, the word that Jesus spoke on the cross, also means bride. It means bride. The last word that Jesus spoke on the cross was saying, it's finished. I'm not taking away from that at all. It was finished. It was accomplished. Sin in that moment was defeated forever. Salvation, complete assurance of salvation, was achieved in that moment. The pivotal moment of the universe. But at the same time, he was saying, what's it finished for? What's it accomplished for? Accomplished for bride. For people, for the church, for the relationship of closeness and love and intimacy that would be between the people who entered into what was finished and lived in the good of that the rest of their earthly lives and then eternally. Uh, That's a thought that blows my mind. When I first heard that, I thought that can't be true. (laughs) Because I'd always been told that it, it meant it is finished and I'd been told it by people that understood Greek and they gave me all the Greek words and so on. But then somebody explained it in another way and I just had to think about it very differently. It's a covenant that the bride is prepared for. When the bride comes forward to meet her groom, they make a covenant together. We know for a whole variety of reasons and in different circumstances, sometimes that the earthly reflection of that covenant gets damaged. We understand that. We live in an imperfect world. But the heavenly covenant 
does not get damaged. It is never changed. It is never affected. It doesn't matter whether we're married, single, widowed, divorced, or whatever. The covenant we have never, ever gets broken. Imagine on Easter Sunday when we're celebrating the finished work of Christ that we also celebrate the finished work of Christ for the bride, realizing that we are the bride. Okay, next one, Noah. Yeah, so what about the city? All right, just put the bride to one side for the moment. Um, throughout Scripture, God talks about living with his people. Here are some, uh, some verses. Uh, Genesis 17, 8, uh, um, about the land of Canaan. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord. They will be my people. I will be their God, for they will return to me wholeheartedly. Jeremiah 31, 33, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Ezekiel eleven twenty, So that they will obey my decrees and regulations, then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. Uh, again, later in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 14, 11, In this way, the people of Israel will learn not to stray from me, polluting themselves with sin. They will be my people. I will be their God. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. And then there are a couple of others in Ezekiel, um, in Corinthians, in uh, Hebrews, and of course, uh, Revelation 21. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and we're all called to to be victorious because we share in the victory of Jesus, not because it's our own victory, it's his victory that we share in. I will be their God and they will be my children. God speaks about his relationship with his people. It started in a garden. So the image we are given at the start of Genesis is of a relationship in a garden. God did not need to live in a garden. If you read it carefully, you'll see that God came down into the garden to walk with them in the evening. God didn't live in the Garden of Eden. God lived somewhere else. Maybe next door, I don't know, maybe in heaven. Maybe he had a caravan at the end of the garden, who knows. But he came to walk in the garden in the cool of the evening. I just find that interesting. Why would God walk in the cool of the evening? God can walk whenever he wants. Can't he? And God could, God could walk at night because he's, he's light. So he, he carries his own light with him. You know, we just read these things. We never, we just say, oh yeah, God walks in the Garden of Eden with, uh, um, with Adam and Eve. And we don't think, hang on, why does God need to walk? Just turn up, he could float above the ground. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be amusing about it, but in a sense I'm not being amusing. I'm just saying we need to think about why these things are there. Why does it describe God as doing that? I think part of the reason is because he's describing a relationship. God comes into the garden. The people that read this would have understood the time to walk in a garden is in the cool of the evening, not in the heat of the daytime. 
In the Middle East, the gardeners, they get up early in the morning, they work when it's cool, then they take a break in the middle of the day when it's hot, and then they come back and finish the job in the evenings. I watched it on a gardening program. It must be true. It was on the BBC. God walked in the cool of the evening because he wanted to be with his people. When we get to the end of Scripture, we don't have a garden. We've got a whacking great city the size of Europe. Many people would say, oh yes, the, the, the city of, of God comes to Jerusalem. Well, it might well do, but it's going to squish Jerusalem, believe me. I, I worked it out. I sat down and worked it out. And the, the 1,400-mile city stretches from the um, coast of the Mediterranean halfway across uh, Iraq or Iran or, or something and from Georgia in the north to um, the bottom of Saudi Arabia in the, in the, in the bottom, you know. Uh, so... We're taken from a garden to a city. Why a city? A city denotes people coming together, denotes a community. You look at the, 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 the history of, of cities throughout Scripture, let alone in, in a, a kind of uh, normal sense of, of the sort of history of development of society. It's people coming together not just for trade and and all those kind of things, but because people want to be in community. We want to be together. Why do we come together like this? Because for some strange reason, we want to be with each other. We want to be in a community of people. That's a normal response. That's the way God's fitted us together. This is from Hebrews describing Abraham, what happened to him when he left his home, Ur. You know, I was in a, when I was a, a kid and, and went to church, my parents, uh, they weren't Christians. They, um, they ran a pub. It's not that you can't be a Christian and run a pub, but the two things aren't necessarily uh, exactly matching up. But they sent me to, to church. I'm very grateful to them. I think they just wanted rid of me on a Sunday morning. But they sent me to church. And, and I, I just kept going. And because I as a child, was incredibly intelligent. I don't know what went wrong, but as a child, uh, uh, at least I had a good memory, and so I, we used to have all these Sunday school quizzes, and we, I remember going with one to represent our church, which wasn't that difficult, because it needed a team of four, and I think we only had three children. And, um, and uh, there was one question about Abraham, where did Abraham come from? And no word of a lie, this kid on this other team said, uh, and they gave him the... The, the answer, I was incensed. I was so unfair. I mean, talk about the lack of righteousness in the church. That was appalling. Um, it was my faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home, go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. Abraham was a tent dweller. Okay, He was a nomad. Uh, did, I've always wondered if nomads have gnomes. You know, nomadic, that just appeals to me. You're all thinking, what? Uh, and even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. So did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. So three generations of people living in tents, all living on the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to what? A camp with lots of tents? No, a city. He was looking forward to a city. He came from a city. He knew what a city was, but he was living in a tent. 
and uh, traveling around and moving around with all his flocks and possessions and things, but he was looking forward to a city. Did he ever see the city? No, he didn't. But he died believing the promise. A city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Not designed and built by man, but designed and built by God. A city to bring people together, to have a community. I think that's why the picture of of the the city in Revelation is just so big. Because at that time, nobody could imagine a, a, a city that big. Nobody could imagine anything that big. Couldn't even imagine walking that far. Nobody had been 1,400 miles. So the picture is of just this incredibly big community of something where there was room for everyone. In my father's house, there are many rooms, many mansions, many apartments, many condominiums, many holiday villas, whatever we like. There's just space for everybody. That's why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. Has prepared. Not is preparing, has prepared. One of the other images of the church is that we are a building, built together with living stones. God's building a city. Guess who the city are? Guess who the city are? Help me here. It's us, the church. The city, the city that descends is the church. Because it's dressed like what? Like a bride prepared for her groom. The church, we are called together into community, whether we like it or not. We can rail against it all we like. We can call the rest of the the churches that we see, we can say, oh, they don't believe this or they're apostate or whatever. And, and there are still churches that do that. There are churches in this city who will not sit in the same room as other churches because they, they, they are just so opposed to what they believe. Okay? And they think that they, they should move to, to think what they think. Um, I think we're all going to be in for a surprise. <laughs> all of us. It's not just us, because we haven't got it any more right than anybody else, I suspect. We're going to be in for a surprise because we're all part of this city. And we'll we'll be in the city and we'll be a living stone next to some other living stone and we'll look at them and we'll go, wow, I didn't expect you to be here. And they'll look at us and say, well, God told me you weren't going to be here. (laughs) At least I thought God told me that. So that's where the bride and the city come together because both of them speak of, of intimacy. Both of them speak of communion. With God and with each other, of of being in this incredible state of relationship with God. So when we come together like this, that's true. That's already true. And whatever whatever we're feeling, however we walk in, whatever we're carrying, whatever's gone on in the week, whatever whatever imperfections we are aware of, the truth is what's here in Scripture. That's why we need to read it, because it's true. It's the only thing that's going to keep us grounded, is God interpreting this to us. Otherwise, we just believe everything else that goes on around us. Don't we? We do. Okay. Is there another slide? I think there is. I don't know what it says. 
Yeah, and, and go on. Okay. So the end of Revelation. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. So what we're being prepared for as the church is this meeting. We call it the second coming. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not actually a biblical phrase. And um, it's one that the church has developed. And it, it doesn't really do it justice. Because it's, it, it can sound quite heavy. Like Jesus is coming back and boy is he mad. You know, so he's, he's, you know, I'm coming with my winnowing fork in my hand and we've got all these kind of negative images of it. Yeah, there's, there is accountability. There is accountability. We, we will need to give account. But in the church, it's not on the basis of whether we, we have a relationship with Jesus or not. That's already sorted. Okay, the accountability that, that we have is, is different. We're accountable for the, the good deeds, the reward that we receive. But when we think about this, this meeting, use the, the image of a wedding. The best image I can, can give you. So I, 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 you know, I've got, um, I'm invited to some weddings this year. Thanks very much. And um, I, I, just, I just love it because you see within it a picture Okay, let's let's respond. Let's respond. Holy Spirit, will you speak to us and highlight the things that you're saying? Highlight them in big, wonderful, bold, luminous letters. Write them on our hearts. Write them in our minds. Write them into our spirits. And whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is is indicating to you, take it away and, and work with him on it. Allow him to to work that into you. It is precious. It is life-giving. It will change your life. It will draw you closer to him. It will be different in everybody's life. There will be things that, uh, there might not be anything, but I suspect there will be things for most of us that God has said to us through looking at, at this subject. Sometimes we, do, we can just let words fall to the ground and, and they, they can be lost to us for a while until God brings them back. We make more progress with God when we don't let them fall to the ground, when we hold on to them, when we treat it as something special. It's a, it's a delivery from heaven's depository to you. It's God unveiling something before you and saying, Hey, Graham, 
hey, whoever you are, look at this. This is truth about you. So take it away and do something with it. Father, our desire is to respond to you. We say, as we are the bride, we say, come, Lord. Come to us. Come close to us. Come closer to us than we have known you. Draw us in closely to your presence. The Father says to you, you reach into my heart. With one flash of your eyes, I am undone by your love. My beloved, my equal, my bride. You leave me breathless. I am overcome by merely a glance from your worshipping eyes. For you have stolen my heart. Father, please give everybody here this morning a deeper experience and understanding of this truth that we have stolen your heart that a mere glance of our worshipping eyes overcomes you that you are held hostage by our love Some of us are facing situations that we are struggling with and we're saying, but how can this be, God? I I just don't understand the situation. And, And God says, just look at me and things will become clearer. Don't look at the situation. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me and things will become clearer. There's always an opportunity to pray if you'd um, like to with somebody at the end to approach Graham or me or one of the other leaders or just somebody who you know. We'd be delighted to pray. Um, I was just thinking just at the end then that um, you mentioned that leaders have been around to pray with Maureen. That'll be because she asked them to. So if you like prayer, do ask. Uh, great. Cake. Pound per square for the Easter cake. Uh, coffee enjoy thank you
Chris. Oh, Pete.